Hi, this is Brent Skousen, the youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. What you are about to hear is a live recording of a university lecture by W. Cleon Skousen as he taught his Old Testament course. We really are fortunate to have these recordings, although at the time they weren't anticipated to be released publicly. As these lectures were recorded live, they are unscripted and unedited. You will feel as though you are actually there. If you are following the Come Follow Me curriculum from The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have tried to coordinate each lecture with this week's lesson, although there may be some overlap. For those interested in the text Brother Skousen and the students are using, it is published as The Third Thousand Years, written by W. Cleon Skousen, and it is available at bookstores or online at skousen2000.com. And if you prefer listening to the text, there is a new audio version just published this year, which you can download from Amazon, iTunes, or audible.com. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! Now, I want to go kind of fast today, see if I can catch up with you, because we had poor Rebecca now expecting babies, and I um, want to be sure we got that all taken care of and got, get Jacob out of all his problems, because he had plenty. So let me just go through that now, kind of remind you of a few things that tend to get into the examination. I suppose that having had the rather exciting experience of being raised as a semi-heathen, which Rebecca was, and then having herself selected by the Lord himself to partake of the great blessings of um, Uncle Abraham uh, through his son Isaac, and have all these marvelous experiences, and then not being able to have children through which these blessings come for over 19 years was a real trial to Rebecca's faith. And then to um, have her uh, husband intervene and pray that the Lord would bless her so she could have this special blessing and then be so terribly ill when her children were being, or when she thought she was with child, to be followed by her first personal revelation, so far as we know, indicating that she was going to have two children, not one, and that the second would be the heir. And uh, you remember that when the first one was born, he was named Esau because he was so what? Hairy. And then after he got a little older, the, the hair kind of uh, took on a little pigment, and so they called him, called him what? Edom, which means red. So he was Harry the Red. And if you just think of it that way, you'll never forget what Esau and Edom stand for. <clears throat> and um, the second little fellow came along, and even during the birth process, he reached out and grabbed the ankle of little Harry, and uh, they afterwards kind of thought that was a token and a sign. They gave him the name Jacob, which means what? The usurper or the supplanter, the grabber. And because the Arab peoples descended from the eldest, uh, and they remind the Jews every so often that they descended from the second one, and, uh, and uh, they, they think maybe they did a little usurping down along the line. But that's another story. Uh, anyway, that when you get over into Israel, in, in the Arab-Israel conflict right now, this story comes up every so often. They're through Ishmael and Esau, or Edom. Because as, as you remember in our story, um, Esau went over and married into the family of Ishmael. So you've got the Arabs coming down through, through these two people, through Ishmael and Esau, through both of them. All right, now something happened pretty exciting to these two boys when they were about 15. What was that? 
That was the death of their very famous grandfather, Abraham. And uh, who was it that took care of Abraham's funeral? Ishmael and Isaac, both together. Now, the, the cave of Machpelah at Hebron is down from Jerusalem about 16 miles. I shouldn't say down, it's along the tops of the mountains. And that's a main Arab center at the moment. And uh, when you go in to look uh, down through a little hole where you can see the cave underneath the mosque, um, you have to go in at ver certain times because they have the uh, funerals in this same mosque all the time and the body of the dead is, is right out in the open. They don't have it in a casket or anything. They just carry it on a bier, you know, and surrounded with the flowers. And they'll bring the, them in and, and the, you have to go in to see it in between the funeral services and other things that they're carrying on. And up in the mosque itself, they have these great, huge um, uh, sarcophagi with the names of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth on them. But actually, there's nothing in them. They're about 14th century A.D. They're sort of memorial tombs. Uh, the, but they, the cave of Machpelah, the only big cave around there, as a matter of fact, so we're quite sure it is probably the right one, is down underneath the mosque. And they have you look down, and you can see a little lamp burning way down deep in the cave. And uh, it probably was the one that once housed the, the bodies of all these very famous people. Because of the famine that struck the upper region in the mountain area where they were living, they were forced down onto the plain where the Philistines and the other Canaanites lived. And so they went to, to stay at Gerar, where there was a heathen king. And you have Isaac using the same uh, uh, excuse as did his father. His wife, Rebecca, is such a beautiful girl. Boy, these, these princesses of Shem, they were really beautiful women, even when they were quite elderly. And uh, so he uses the sister bit. You know, she is my sister, brother and sister in the gospel. Anyway, uh, his father used that down in Egypt. Uh, he didn't really have that good an excuse, did he, as his father did. But anyway, he used it. And then somebody was looking out the window and saw that uh, um, Isaac and, um, and Rebecca were acting more like husband and wife uh, than brother and sister, uh, unless they've been Greeks. And so um, uh, it was suggested that they move away, and uh, at least there was some hostility. And how many times did they finally move? They did go out in the desert and dig a well, and, and then the um, Philistines would move in around and say, that's ours. And so they'd move on, and that's ours, and they'd move on. They dug that third well, and finally they're so close to Abraham's old homestead, which had been abandoned, that they decided to go over there to what was used to be called Beer Sheba. And uh, so there they were when the king of Abimelech uh, of Gerar came to see them with a couple of his people. And uh, Isaac said, uh, why do you come to see me? I, didn't, I thought you hated me. Uh, no, they said, it, no, it's all right, it's all right. You're very fine, prosperous people. We like to have you, don't go too far away, stay around. You'll find the heathens doing this every once in a while, the Hebrews. Stay around, it's good for business. And uh, so um, uh, we have this, this relationship, and uh, it was kind of a relief uh, to Isaac and his two sons because they were prospering, and they did want to be friends if they could, and the men were out there digging like 60 in Abraham's old wells to see if they could get water out this far. And so they went ahead and had their little feast and made their covenants and called it again, what? 
Beersheba and Sheba being what? Meaning well. And this is a covenant of the well. The oath by the well. Or the well of the oath. And um, the king had barely departed back toward Gerar when his men came in and said, We struck. We got water. Oh, that's fine, Isaac said. This will be our homestead. This is where we will live. This is where we will stay. And so that was where they were and uh, had their establishment and their sheep and their farms and everything there. Which one was the farmer? Esau or Jacob? Esau. Which one was the shepherd? Jacob. And can you tell the difference? Yeah, one was red, one wasn't. Yeah. Yes, there's several ways that you can tell the difference, as we notice here a little later on. Now, um, when these two boys were 40 years of age, they'd become men, of course, by this time, and um, they weren't allowed to marry anybody in the vicinity. They were all heathens and uh, forbidden under the covenant of the priesthood to be marriageable to them. Nevertheless, uh, what happened to Esau? He married two of the Canaanite girls. Now, it was a source of great sorrow to the mother and father, but Esau didn't seem to take it uh, seriously until many years later, quite a few years later. Uh, now, how old is um, Isaac by this time? How old will... He, he was how old when the boys were born? He was 40 years when he married. He had to wait how long until he had children? So that makes him... See, he's getting up there, isn't he? 60. Okay, now, uh, the, now the boys are 40 years old. Now what? So how old is he? 100, okay. Now, because of a subsequent deduction that we're able to make, uh, fairly speaking... Uh, mathematically speaking, we find that when he was about 117, he went blind, thought he was going to die. He's actually going to live for another 63 years, but he thinks he's about to die. You, you all remember this incident. Prior to this time that we'd had that situation arise, we don't know exactly the date or the period, but uh, there had been an occasion when Esau had taken a solemn oath to sell his birthright for a bunch of pottage that had been cooked by the sheep herder brother of his. Sheep herders are usually good cooks. And uh, so he had sold his birthright, but now that his father is old, he says he's going to give the birthright to Esau, who is the elder son and his favorite, in spite of the revelation to Mother Rebecca. And um, so he tells Esau to go out and get the venison and come in and, and make the stew that he so enjoys eating. And that's when Mother Rebecca overheard it and runs to Jacob, who's now 57 years of age. These two twins are now about 57 in that vicinity. And we're able to deduct that from the age of Jacob when Joseph was born. That's our next date. He's 91 when Joseph is born. We figure it all the way back to get down to 57 for Jacob when this uh, incident happens. These are kind of things that you can figure out after, if you go into the scriptures in depth. So I'd kind of remember that 57 date because usually they think of Jacob as going up to get a wife when he was still a very young man. He was not. He was um, <clears throat> fairly mature, even for those ancient days when they lived to be 150 or 60 years old. And so Jacob uh, doesn't want to do it. Why didn't he want to do it? His mother says, I want you to put on this um, lamb skin or goat skin. I want you to go in there and pretend that you are Esau. I want you to talk like him, pretend that you're him, and get that birthright blessing. It belongs to you. And Jacob said he didn't want to do it. Why? Yes, he said, my father will find I'm deceiving him. And, uh, and then who took full responsibility for this little ploy? Yeah, she pulled rank on him. And she says, I command you to do it. 
So anyway, uh, Jacob tries it. Gets it on his hands and on the back of his neck, and he goes in and makes that famous speech. Well, here it is. <laughs> Who are you? Well, Esau, thy, thy firstborn, and I've done according as thou badest me. Rise, I pray thee, sit in eat of my venison, that thy soul may bless me. And Isaac said to his son, Now how is it thou hast found it so quickly, my son? Well, he said, Because the Lord thy God brought it to me. And Isaac said unto Jacob, Come near, I pray thee, that I may feel thee, my son, whether thou be my very son Esau or not. And Jacob went near unto Isaac his father, and he felt him, and he said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Then just to reassure himself, for the last time Isaac asked for one final confirmation, said he, Art thou my very son Esau? And with complete finality, Jacob replied, I am. So Isaac ate heartily of the savory meat which Jacob had presented to him. When the meal was finished, the elderly Isaac prepared to give him his son the coveted blessing. And his father Isaac said unto him, Come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him. During this embrace, Isaac immediately caught the perfumed fragrance of the goodly raiment Jacob was wearing, clothes which belonged to Esau's rich wardrobe. It apparently reminded the aged Isaac of the blossoms of the field which his blind eyes would never see again. Therefore he began his blessing in these words, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field which the Lord hath blessed. Therefore God give thee of the dew of heaven, and the fatness of the earth, and plenty of corn and wine. Let people serve thee, and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren. You see, this is the top blessing. Can't do any better than this one. And let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Cursed be everyone that curseth thee, and blessed be he that blesseth thee. And so he departed. And then you have that tragic scene when Esau comes in and says, Here I am, Father. And Isaac says, Who art thou? <laughs> and he said, I am thy son, thy firstborn Esau. And Isaac trembled very exceedingly, the Bible said, and asked, Who? Then where is he that hath taken venison and brought it to me? And I have eaten of all before thou camest, and have blessed him. Yea, and he shall be blessed. Now those are the words that endorse the blessing. So you can't get a priesthood blessing by deception. I kind of have a feeling that if we knew all of the facts, we'd know that Isaac kind of knew that he was supposed to be blessing Jacob with the first blessing. And now that he realizes that it was obtained by a deception, he endorses it and ratifies it. Otherwise, it never would have gone through to Jacob because you can't get a blessing of the priesthood. It isn't sealed up on the other side. And unless it's sealed by the spirit of promise, as an honest blessing, nothing, nothing actually happens. Well, when Esau found out what, what had happened, he said, well, can't you give me some kind of a blessing, Father? Isn't there anything left over? And so the father blessed him to the little bit that he could. <laughs> there wasn't much left, actually. But he gave him whatever blessing he could. And Esau went out, but he was very angry. And he said, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. I'll cut him down. I'll wait till my father's been buried, and then I'm going to kill him. And so Rebecca heard that too. She had the sharpest ears. She just must... <laughs> I've noticed the women of the Middle East are very uh, adept at this. They, they're here and there and everywhere. Very busy, not paying any attention, but their ears just twittering with anxiety. Well, what's going on? Well, then she has this very interesting approach to uh, Father Isaac. How, how can she get him to send this boy away? She used the one device that went right through to his heart like a shaft. 
and that was to complain to him that since Esau had married outside the covenant, her life would, have be, would be worthless and the covenant that had been given by Father Abraham down through the lineage lost if by any chance Jacob married outside the covenant. Oh, oh yes, Isaac said, that's right, we've got to get this boy, got to get him out of here. So he says... Um, uh, thou shalt uh, take thee a wife of the. Uh, thou shalt not take thee a wife of the daughters of Canaan, Jacob. Arise, go to Pandanaram, to the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. And God Almighty bless thee, and make thee fruitful, and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people. And give thee the blessings of Abraham to thee and to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. So that's everything. Jacob is totally reconciled. I mean, Isaac is totally reconciled now to Jacob getting the whole blessing. And so he departs immediately. And his mother bade him farewell, saying that he would only be gone a few days and then he could come back. How long before he came back? Nearly half a century. Will she ever see him again? No, she'll be dead before he gets back. Now, there's an answer to that one, and uh, what is the answer? Right, just as soon as Jacob was gone, this is one of the interesting things about this story, as soon as Esau realized how upset and uptight his mother and father were about marriage, he decided he'd better get with it too. So he went to his father's brother, Jacob had gone to his mother's brother. He went to his father's brother, who was Ishmael, and married into that family. And the Arabs descend from that marriage. Now we're together. Okay? Good question. And it's kind of exciting what the answer to that one is. That's it. There have been several times down through the centuries where Jerusalem and Israel has been the dominant people, and the Bedouin people have been all around, you see, rather dependent commercially and otherwise on the government. And then the Jews have been out of dominion and the Arabs have taken it over. This has been, been the case from time to time. Now in the latter days, Isaiah said that the two will live very closely together and the Arabs will say to the Jews, God is with you, let us go with you and be together. It also says the Jews will be a great blessing to the Arabs and to other nations round about. So that reconciliation will come in due time. Not at the moment, however. Not at the moment. Now when Jacob departed, he had quite a ways to go to get up, up to Luz, uh, the city of light, which was um, quite a famous spot in Israel's history because it's where Abraham had offered sacrifices. And it was outside of this city that he went to sleep that night and had this wonderful vision in which, did he get to see God? Did he get to see the Lord in this vision, this dream? Yes or no? No? Yes. That's on the examination. So notice that he does get to see him at the top of the, of the staircase. And he sees the angels going up and down, doesn't he? And then he receives that... Um, um, he saw the personage of the Lord standing at the portals of glory who spoke to him and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed and thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's the great blessing of Abraham. Now given to Jacob, who must have wondered at times, though his father had blessed him, 
and apparently forgiven him had the Lord forgiven him and apparently it's acceptable now the Lord says behold Jacob I am with thee and will keep thee in all places whether thou goest and will bring thee again into this land for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. So that was a great blessing to him, and he's so glad now he's going to be blessed on this mission. It's, a, it's dangerous in a sense. He's going to be able to get a lovely wife like his father obtained from this land. And so he goes forth rejoicing. Before he does so, he takes the stone on which he had rested during the night and heaved it up onto end so that it formed a pillar and then poured oil on it and anointed it and made a covenant with God that whatsoever he should bless him with in Pandaram, he would um, give one-tenth to the Lord. This is the law of tithing. Let me ask you a question. Is tithing done away with under the law of consecration? Supposing we're all living united order of the law of consecration where we gave all our surplus, all our increase to the Lord. After we, we take out what we need for our family, we give the increase to the Lord. Is tithing still used? Let me just tell you a little, little secret on that one because uh, I, I learned this myself not too long ago. Under the law of consecration or united order, if you only have enough for your family, supposing you're a uh, a school teacher and actually when you got through there was no I mean after you'd f taken care of your family and those needs there really wasn't any surplus so do you p give anything you pay a tithe just like you do now in other words everybody pays in something and if you don't have an increase then you pay a tithe on that which you kept back for your family so the tithing operates even under, and that's the way it is in the Doctrine and Covenants, and it sort of bothered me. So I got to doing some research on it and found that those who do not have anything to contribute as increase or surplus over the needs of their family then pay a tithe on what they did receive, just like you do now. Uh, it's, um, the Doctrine and Covenants has it under tithing where it says, and this shall be a covenant forever in the church. Right. So what you do is to have tithing as the floor. Everybody pays tithing. Then when you get into the law of consecration, you give all your increase or surplus over and above your needs. So actually what law of consecration is, is tithing plus. So that's, um, I, you've stated it the way I generally understood it. But when I got to doing research on it, I found that under the law of consecration, there will be some people you see who will have only their necessities of life. They don't get past the necessities. The Lord says, then you just pay a tenth of that. Isn't that kind of interesting? Yeah, it's like we do now. <laughs> right? Okay. Jacob made this Who's going to receive the tithe? Right, good question. Because apparently he has to sort of lay up in store until he comes to someone where there's an organized part of the kingdom for it. So we don't have that detail. We did with Abraham, but now we don't have it here. Because you'd have to have a community life set up in order to make that contribution to a bishop, wouldn't you? Okay, good. Now, when Jacob arrived in Haran, um, I want to just point something out to you. Um, when Abraham first went up to Haran, his father went with him and, uh, and then his father stayed there. After Abraham had continued on down into Egypt and come back here at the age of 75, uh, we find that his brother... Nehor or Nahor and Milcah had come on up there and established themselves. And then Aram 
a grandson of Nehor and Milcah, became very famous in this area. And it became known as Pandanaram, the land of Pandanaram. In other words, it was named after this uh, um, grandchild of the uh, first settlers. And that language and his prominence became so famous that it spread out in every direction. And they had kind of a dialect of the, of the old Hebrew. And it became known as the language of Aram, or the Aramaic language. And when Jesus was on the earth, it was the dialect of Aram that everybody was speaking. Uh, it became as universal as Greek itself. And so you hear of the Aramaic language. Only Hebrew was used in the temple. But for the common speech of the people, they used the dialect of Hebrew called the Aramaic language. And that's what it comes from, Pandan Aram. And this, uh, this territory and this culture subsequently spread all over Syria, all up and down into this territory. All right, now when he gets up there, uh, this lovely girl, Rachel, probably about 14, this is an assumption on our part because we think that's why he said, I'll work for her seven years, meaning give her time to mature, grow up. We can't think of any other reason why he would specifically offer seven years. We think that it was because she was young, maturing, but beautiful, and th this is the thought. In any event, he saw her, and he introduced himself to her. She ran and told her, uh, her brother Laban and uh, her father Laban, I should say. And um, then we find Jacob welcomed into the house. Now, he was a good guest. Uh, he made his bed like good missionaries do and uh, tidied up around the house uh, afterwards. And uh, then he went out and helped with the flocks. And after about a month, why Laban says, you know, this just isn't right. You're a relative, but I don't want to impose on you. I'd like to uh, pay you if I could. Uh, I'd like to keep you with me. And well, Jacob said, I'm not going anywhere especially. Um, and uh, so he said, I uh, tell you what I'll do. I'll work seven years for the hand of your daughter, Rachel. Did Laban think that was a good bargain? Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, <clears throat> uh, this, this was a bargain. And uh, so we have this. Uh, and did the time hang on the hands of Jacob? Did, he, did it seem like a long time? No, love does that to a person, they tell me. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, I know it, 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 it flies fast. In, uh, when, when a person is doing something for someone they love, it just seems like it goes fast. So it says the seven years pass rapidly. Now you've got him up to around 64 years of age. And uh, in our day, 64, you know, is, is rather mature, to say the least. But... Because they lived to be 175 or 180, you see, this makes 64 comparable to around 40, 45, maybe in the late 30s even. So he's a fine, handsome young fellow and mature, and sometimes more mature men are very attractive to girls, they say. So in any event, um, uh, came time for the wedding. Uh, now, was it a quiet, private wedding? No, it was a big affair, wasn't it? It was really a big affair. And I've watched some of the Bedouin weddings just to kind of get the spirit of the desert. And, the, and I'll tell you, they really put on a, a, a show. And they bring in everybody and they're all in their real fancy robes and gowns and there is much whining and dining and toast making and great laughter and uh, it's tremendous. Um, and so in the very late hours with nothing but very dim lights, if any at all, left Why we have... Jacob, of course, retiring to the honeymoon tent and to his bride. And uh, that's quite a dramatic story, to say the least. Um, 
for uh, come morning, uh, apparently um, there wasn't even enough conversation uh, between the two of them uh, to um, uh, reveal the fact that uh, this maiden that has been given in marriage, and there was a marriage ceremony, but she was heavily veiled, you know, after the Middle East. Uh, this isn't the girl he's worked for. And it's kind of interesting when he wakes up the next morning and finds out who is there. It is not Rachel. And he was married to the one that is there. And that is Leah. And he just wasn't interested in Leah at all. Uh, she with the um, soft eyes, uh, whatever that means. Tender-eyed, tender-eyed Leah. Um, so I should imagine tender-eyed would be very appealing, but we don't know exactly what tender-eyed meant. But in any event, whatever it meant, it wasn't appealing to Jacob. Boy, did he, was he raving mad when he got in there with the old sheik. What is this thou hast done unto me? Did I not serve thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? But the shrewd old sheik of Haran was ready with an answer, said he. Oh, it must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Then he made a proposition to the wrath-filled bridegroom. Laban said that if Jacob would go ahead and fulfill the customary honeymoon or marriage week with Leah, he would then give Jacob the bride he had been expecting. Of course, the wily Laban added that if Jacob now took Rachel as a wife, it would cost him another seven years. <laughs> Boy, they're real bargainers. You know, if you want to see something very interesting, you ought to go to Beirut where the Jewish merchants bargain with the Lebanese, who are Arabs. And they just have an understanding with each other. Um, it just isn't a good day if you haven't had a real good bargaining. They don't even like you to buy on the first offer, you know. That takes all the fun out of it. You're supposed to haggle a little bit, back and forth. And it's almost like a drama to watch them... Uh, uh, they'll say, he'll say, how much? And of course you can't understand their language, at least I couldn't, but, uh, but I can tell about what they're, how much? Give you a good price, Israel. <laughs> best price, very best price. Take it or leave it. And he gives him a price. Oh, terrible, terrible, terrible. Wouldn't think of a good buy, good buy. But he doesn't go very far. He says, what was the price again? Well, the fellow says, you're such an, I'll come down below cost. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, probably says I'm, I'm losing money but uh, on, on every sale but I make it up on volume well <laughs> and then I've watched him there's this constant no 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 it's no good no good and then they just kind of walk a little slower as they get to the door and uh, there's always a meeting again this will go on for an hour or an hour and a half and um, you would think they were angry at each other they call each other cheaters and, and so forth. They just really get themselves worked up. And finally one of them will say, it's all right. I shouldn't do it. My wife will be angry with me, but I'll let you have it. You're an old customer and a good friend. I'll let you have it. Oh, I'll never live this down, but you can have it. So the man finally pulls out the money and he says, sold. And immediately the other one lights up. That's good. And he puts his arm around him and they have a little drink together and they wrap it up. It's really a, an interesting show. So if you ever go to 
Beirut. Don't miss that. You go down to the marketplace and watch the, the, the Jewish merchants bargain with the Lebanese merchants. Some of our most successful businessmen in New York are Lebanese. They're very successful and very good to deal with. The only thing we have is the um, statement by the brethren that whenever the priesthood has been on the earth and the priesthood have participated in marriages, it has always been for time and eternity. It's the only kind of marriages the priesthood performs as such. So we would assume that that was the case. But it doesn't discuss it, so it's an assumption on our part. Now, uh, after he had married these two girls, by the way, this is sometimes on my examinations, how long did Jacob have to wait before he got Rachel? One week. One week. You think you remember that? Because nearly every student of the Old Testament, I've, I've seen men with, um, with divinity degrees miss on that question. They just somehow get the little thought in the brain that he had to wait uh, a total of 14 years after he met Rachel before he got her. No, he got her one week after Leah. And um, who was his favorite? And was that rather apparent from the beginning? Yeah, it was hard for Jacob to forgive Leah with the tender eyes for taking him in that way and conspiring with her daddy uh, to get inside the marriage covenant by slick, uh, slickerino methods. But um, this kind of runs in the family. A little slickerinos going on all around here, uh, it would seem. There are a lot of little slickerinos before we get through here. But um, in any event, it's interesting how... Um, who had the first child? And uh, so she gave him the name of Reuben, which means see a son. Mm, very good. She then conceived again and brought forth a son whom she named Simeon. And that means hearing. I think my husband now will, uh, the Lord is hearing me and giving me the blessings to kind of make it up for me, and I think I'll get the confidence of my husband here in due time. And um, then finally she had um, another son, and she named him Levi, which means joined. Everything's getting better and better. And um, uh, then the fourth son was born, and she felt uh, like that was a real victory, and so she named him Judah, which means praised, praised. Now, at this point, we have Rachel deciding that she just better have a son by, um, by proxy. She just isn't having children, just isn't happening. She's just like Rebecca, not having children, so she decides that her maidservant will be given to her husband to bear children. Now, this was done in ancient times because a man made a ter paid a terrific dowry for his wife uh, on the assumption that if he abandoned her and she went back to her folks that would be to kind of take care of her the rest of her life. That's what the dowry was for. Now the husband who pays this tremendous dowry for this wife as an insurance policy that he's going to be true to her etc expects that she shall be able to bear him children otherwise um, it was not a good bargain. Got to have children and so in ancient times it became customary to have a very beautiful handmaiden go with the bride as her handmaiden but to be available in case her mistress was unable to bear children. And so you have Rachel asking Jacob to take her handmaiden for wife. What was her name? Bilhah. And so, was she taken as a wife or a concubine? 
wife. Now, in some, we have some references. I think it was in this class. Someone was showing me some references in the Old Testament, and it is not changed in the inspired version, so we don't know whether it's right or wrong, referring to the, some of the patriarchs having concubines. But um, this probably uh, is, needs to be clarified because, as Jacob says in, his, in the Book of Mormon, that under the priesthood there are no concubines. They are, if they're plural families, they are all wives and they're to be treated equally. They receive their inheritances equally, which concubines did not. There doesn't seem to be a place for concubines under the true order of the priesthood at all. So she was married as a wife. And then she had a son and all Rachel was so pleased. She says, hey, we're coming on now. And um, so uh, for some reason or another, Rachel isn't a, or Leah isn't able to have children. So she gets excited and... Uh, Ask Jacob if he'll please take his, or, or rather her um, handmaid to wife. And what was her name? Zilpah. Can you remember those two women? They're, they're famous women, so we don't have enough women's name in the Bible anyway, and so let's remember these few that we do have. And so she had a son, and Leah now, you see, this is a five to one. She's doing pretty good. Five to one. So she named the first one Gad, which meant what? A troop cometh. <laughs> We're on our way. We're going to gain. Uh, this is really a, an interesting competition. And uh, then we have Bilha having another son, and so it goes on. And uh, before we're through, why, um, we have Leah with ha having her six sons. She had six sons altogether. We have Bilha with two sons and Zilpah with two sons. And then finally Rachel has her little boy, and he was our great ancestor, born when the father was 91 years of age. And, um, and Joseph, born in his father's old age, was a son of, um, of great promise. And uh, in fact, by the, by the time Rachel had born his son, uh, Jacob was ready to leave, go back home. Now, it would appear, and all Bible scholars generally have agreed that he'd only been there for 20 years. Is this long enough to account for what happened? Doesn't fit, does it? So I followed Dr. Um, Clark uh, in his deduction and shared it within your book to show how, in all probability, the period was not 20. That was the time he was actually in the employment of uh, Father Laban, but that actually he was down there uh, around 40 years, about 40 years. He could not possibly have had grown sons who in just a few months are going to go in and wipe out the whole uh, town um, where Dinah is going to be ravished, kidnapped and ravished. It just doesn't fit, you see, unless we have a considerable period of time. It's interesting that Jacob had, uh, had such great success with uh, the flocks of Laban that Laban did not want Jacob to leave and makes him this proposition that if he will stay, he can have much better wages. He apparently has been a lousy boss. Uh, if, if everything is true that Jacob said was true, why Laban was really a, a hard man to work for. But now we find uh, Jacob making a proposition that he'll get all the speckled cattle for his blessing, his reward. <laughs> and of course, Laban just thought that was tremendous because there weren't very many of them. Yeah, you can pick them out. There weren't even a tithing out there. If you've, if you've been around cattle very much, you'll notice that very seldom that you'll have these spotted cattle. And uh, then, then Jacob thought he knew a little device to change uh, that. So he got a lot of speckled cattle. And um, so he went through this device, which is a very old superstition that whatever 
Anything bearing its young seeds will affect the offspring. Was this the real reason that Laban's cattle began to bear speckled cattle? He, he wouldn't have known this if the Lord hadn't revealed it, but the Lord did reveal it. And by what means was it achieved? Divine intervention in the genetic process. Right. Okay, now we have the return home, and we'll, we'll start there next time.